has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have a car stopped in town and branch microbiter. We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, a 27-year veteran of the NYPD, retired out of Manhattan North Homicide Squad. And with me today, a fan favorite, professor and retired NYPD Sergeant Michael Geary. How are you doing today, Mike? Very good, Billy. Thank you for having me. You know, Mike, people like your calmness, your your down-low demeanor, they liked, of course, they love the New York accent, but Mike is a, a professor at Albertus Magnus College in New Haven, Connecticut, and he also incidentally has a law degree, so uh, he can be our go-to guy with a lot of uh, the legal issues here. You know, folks, everyone was expecting huge things today. Well, you should, probably shouldn't have from this hearing. Um, and really, uh, you know, someone said on law, the Law and Crime channel, it's going to be a nothing burger. I love that expression, nothing burger, you know, and it turned out almost to be that, you know, and if you didn't watch, I'm going to play a little bit of of the hearing here, but one of the things is like, it's all of this stuff has a lot to do with, um, with timing and, you know, a defendant, uh, they have the speedy trial uh, clause in there really for a defendant, but when a defendant wants to slow down that speedy trial thing. He absolutely has the right to do that. And in essence, what happened in the hearing today is that the defense slowed down the speedy trial, um, you know, thing today, because guess what? Not a big surprise. They're not ready. They're not ready to proceed. There's a lot of things they don't do not know. And of course, the prosecution has no intention of letting them know right away. They'll comply with discovery when they have to, and no sooner than when they have to. Let the defense work. Let them find out things without it being handed to them on a silver platter. Uh, so the discovery process. So if you weren't watching this today, and again, we're going to play some of it, the next court appearance is not till June 23rd. So you may ask, like, well, what? why do they need that much time? And to answer that, I'm going to hand it over to the Professor Mike Geary. Thank you, Billy. Yeah, it, strategically, uh, although a uh, defendant in the United States, in any state or on the federal level, they have a right to a speedy trial under the Sixth and Fourteenth Amendments, and also their own the state amendment also and their state law of criminal procedure. But um, tactically, they're not ready in this case, and... Um, they would love to get their hands on all of the material that is that the uh, government has and the FBI has and the Moscow Police Department and the Idaho State Police Department. They'd love to get their hands on it, but they'll get their hands on it when it is statutorily uh, required for the prosecution to hand over that material. Until then, we're looking at what we call due process. And the defendant, uh, Brian Koberg, uh, he enjoys the uh, right, uh, the I'm sorry, the, the you know the uh, the ability to be presumed innocent unto proven guilty, and he needs to have what's called due process. So he's coming into court. He's been served with the uh, arrest warrant, and they're going to look to get some discovery from the prosecution. They're going to set out a timetable with the judge for discovery and for um, a, um, a grand jury or or a. Uh, you know, um, preliminary hearing to show probable cause. But there, you know, the, the defense starts with their foot, you know, one step behind the prosecution. They don't have the evidence. They don't produce the evidence. They don't have the investigators going out there. They don't have a laboratory that they can turn to to um, look at DNA results or fingerprint results or anything like that. So therefore, they're going to need the time uh, to hire their own uh, specialists, maybe perhaps retired uh, police officers, uh, maybe retired medical examiners, 
DNA specialist to look at all the material as it comes in. So it's going to take quite a while. It's going to be a slow process. And tactically, it makes sense for the defense team at this point to uh, not hurry up. There, the, the idea of a speedy trial in this case is going to hurt the defense. They need time to get their uh, hands on the material and do their deep dive into material and see what the material presents to them. You know, the weaknesses in the prosecution's case and the strengths in the prosecution's case. So a June um, hearing date seems far away and it seems like, oh, that's, you know, not fair to the defendant. But many defendants actually want to slow down the process. Absolutely. You know, Mike, if before uh, this hearing on uh, the next court appearance on the 23rd, uh, won't the prosecution impanel a grand jury and, and get the, in, the, the indictment in there first? Well, under Idaho law of criminal procedure, um, once a person has been arrested and it's, and it's a felony, um, they have what's it's actually considered a right to a grand jury proceeding. Um, the grand jury proceeding was first written into our const federal constitution back in like 1791. And it was only applicable to the uh, federal uh, courts. Um, after the passage of the 14th Amendment, it applied to the state courts. And every state has, you know, their own grand jury uh, laws written into criminal procedure. Um, and that must take place if the person is incarcerated, like Holberg is, they have to have a grand jury proceeding within, uh, I think it's 10 uh, court days, 10 business days. Um, and it's very similar to New York. We have what's called the New York, uh, Billy, if you remember from, from the day way back in the day, something called a 180-80 day, yes. whereby if a person wasn't, uh, um, you know, uh, 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 indicted by a grand jury and they were incarcerated, they would have to be released. So all states have that sort of provision. You know, Mike, what that meant to most cops was they would time that so that the grand jury day would fall on their day off. Their RDO. <laughs> so they would get, right, the RDO, regular day off for you folks that aren't coppers out there. Yeah. And so the officer would get eight and a half hours of overtime. So oh, yeah. it was very much choreographed in that way. Yeah, those are good days. So um, if the person is not in custody, um, they can go out to about 14, something like that, 14 uh, business days. But um, it's actually good for a defendant uh, to actually have a grand jury proceeding because they will discover later on what the prosecution's witnesses said in front of the grand jury. Uh, a grand jury isn't a trial jury. A grand jury's uh, job is not to determine ultimate guilt or innocence beyond a reasonable doubt. It is simply to, uh, you know, double check what the police thought about probable cause, what the prosecutor thought about probable cause, and what the previous judge who issued the arrest warrant thought about probable cause. So it's just a check, and it's actually considered good uh, for the defense. And defense attorneys um, usually want to get those grand jury minutes uh, in discovery. Um, the, if they don't have a grand jury impaneled, some states uh, allow also for a what they call a probable cause hearing, which is slightly different, whereby it's an open court. I think Colorado does that, whereby if the uh, they don't have a grand jury in all of their counties, some counties will have what they call a probable cause hearing, and they'll dispense with the grand jury altogether, and the prosecution is required to bring in just enough witnesses in front in open court in front of the defense attorney in front of the defendant in front of the juror in front of the uh, uh, judge and go over the material and just simply establish probable cause one more time absolutely you know mike one um before i play the hearing because it's actually it's very short um i i was a little bit not a lot bit but a little bit surprised that the defense attorney didn't raise the issue of bail and I think when we hear that, and this is a quadruple murder, we would shirk and laugh at that, that this guy should never, ever, ever. But in this right. new world we live in, you know, there's there's some craziness out there. Sure. That someone like this could even be 
or would even be, I should right. rephrase that, would even be considered for bail. I think that would be absolutely ridiculous because he's he's a danger to the community. However, in New York, they don't even consider that anymore. No. A judge is not allowed in New York to consider a defendant's being danger to the community. Right. I, I just, you know, of course, that is lunacy, and that's why, you know, everyone's leaving New York now because our politicians are out of their mind. I don't want to get political, but I just did. But just think of a judge not being able to consider right. danger to the community in granting or not granting bail. You know, I, I think the defense attorney knew that motion for, you know, bail hearing would not be granted. But, you know, the defense attorney is, you know, obligated by the rules of their ethics to zealously advocate and for their client. So to not bring that subject up, um, you know, could be considered, you know, like being negligent in your duties. So the defense attorney, I could see the defense attorney doing, it sounds strange to, you know, maybe people listening in, but I could see the defense attorney uh, doing it saying, look, every possible issue that they could possibly raise at every single hearing to try and get, you know, do what's best for their client. It's their ethical obligation. And so they knew nothing like that's going to happen. You know, Mike, I I could just see an attorney saying he's a PhD student. He's his family's here in the back of the courtroom. He has ties to the community. Uh, He's, he owns a car. He's got the financial wherewithal. to. I could just hear all of that in my violin. I'd start playing right. my Stradivarius as that was going on, right. you know. You know, they could always ask, could you put the car back together and give it back to him so he could drive back to Pennsylvania 2,000 miles away? You know, it's just um, – it's one of those things that it seems weird and odd and crazy, but uh, it's what the defense is trying to do. They're just trying to do their job as zealously as they can. And um, just, just you know, do what they're just do. Uh, follow their rules of ethics. Absolutely. Let me play the uh, the part of the hearing here. All right. Right. Good morning. We are on the record. This is cause number CR 29222805. This is State of Idaho versus Brian Koberger. Mr. Koberger is in custody. He is appearing here in court with his attorneys, Ms. Taylor, Mr. Logston, Mr. Thompson, Ms. Jennings appearing on behalf of the state. This is the time set in the matter for the preliminary hearing status conference. So I am going to inquire of counsel, Ms. Taylor, what's the status at this time? Thank you, Your Honor. We are going to ask the court to set preliminary hearing out into June. We would request the third or fourth week of June and probably four or five days for preliminary hearing. Mr. Koberger understands his right to a timely preliminary hearing and he's willing to waive the timeliness to allow us time to obtain discovery in this case and be prepared. And Mr. Thompson, are you in agreement with that? Uh, the state has no objection to that, Your Honor. Ms. Taylor reached out to us by email yesterday with her proposal. On reflection, the state's calendar would be better in the month of July, but we will make the end of June work if that's the court's preference. And I haven't had a chance to talk to Ms. Taylor about that. I'm sorry, I know that's last minute. That's okay. Um, the court's calendar is going to be better towards the end of June, early July. So would that work, Ms. Taylor, for your scheduling on your other matters? Your Honor, yes. If we take that fourth week in June, that's actually best. Okay. So, Mr. Koberger, I need to speak to you for a moment then. Sir, you do understand, and Ms. Taylor has represented here, that she's advised you of your right to have um, or fully discussed with you the right that you have, which is to have your preliminary hearing within 14 days of the date that you initially appeared before this court. 
As you recall, um, when I advised you of your rights, that hearing is a probable cause hearing where the state has to establish that more likely than not, these felony offenses were committed and you were the one that committed the felony offenses. If you waive your right to a speedy preliminary hearing, it does not mean that you're giving up your right to have a preliminary hearing. It simply means that you would not be able to come back and challenge that the state did not present probable cause within 14 days. Do you understand? Yes. Have you had enough time to speak with Ms. Taylor about your decision to waive your right to a speedy preliminary hearing? Yes. Do you need any additional time to do so? No. Then I will ask at this time, as to the five counts, felony counts that were charged in the uh, criminal complaint that was filed on December 29th of 2022, are you waiving your right to a speedy preliminary hearing and agreeing that that hearing can be held outside the 14-day period? Yes. And Ms. Taylor, do you concur with his waiver? I do, Your Honor. Thank you. I will find your waiver of speedy preliminary hearing is knowing, intelligently, voluntarily entered here in open court with the assistance of counsel. We will go ahead and set the matter for a preliminary hearing. Beginning Monday, June 26th at 9 o'clock a.m. And I will go ahead and reserve uh, the week, so June 26th to June 30th, in the event that uh, we need all five days for presentation of evidence. And just so council knows, um, it will begin at 9 a.m. each of those days. Is there anything further to address at this time in the case, uh, Mr. Thompson? Uh, not from the state's perspective, Your Honor, no. All right. Or Ms. Taylor? No, Your Honor. Okay. Mr. Koberker, then you will be remanded into custody on your same no bail at this point in time, uh, pending further proceedings. Again, we'll send notice out to council, and we will be in recess for this morning. So that was it. That's basically the whole hearing. And the elephant in the room, and everyone's mentioning it, mentioning it in the chat, is the cuts on his face and the cuts on his chin. To me, they look like shaving cuts. But everyone wants to say, "Oh, he got someone beat him up in prison." I don't know. They don't look like they don't look like wounds like that. They do look like uh, shaving cuts. Look, I could be wrong, but. Uh, that's that's what it looks like to me. The other thing is is that I, I I apologize I was wrong. It wasn't June 23rd. It's June 26th. That's a Monday. You know what's going to happen? They're going to come back on the 26th, and defense is going to say, Your Honor, we need much more time. Could you put this off till September? I know it's going to happen. And you've been uh, you've been involved in trials, and you know no one works over the summer. No, the uh, the the state. Is and the and the and the judge is you know they they're entitled to their summer vacation. Things slow down even in New York City, as you know, things slow down a lot in July and August. Uh, that's just you know part of doing business. And it you know they'll get discovery and they'll have a lot of discovery by June. Uh, they, will they get all of it? No, because discovery you know is an ongoing process and the investigation to get evidence against Kohlberg is an on, ongoing process. So it's going to be. Uh, a while they'll get a lot of information, probably swamp with information. They're going to need meaningful amount of time to go over that so they could actually give him the best defense that they possibly can. Yeah, if maybe it'll be put off. Uh, the only thing I, I, I might not put it off is possibly because the, the level of proof is, is simply probable cause, you know, once again. Um, Depending, I guess, really the, what they're going to do is probably depend on how much evidence they got, uh, a discovery they have. But yeah, it would, it'd be very, it's a 50-50 bet whether it's going to be extended all the way through to September. And, and that might actually happen because once you get that uh, preliminary hearing, the judge might in June 
June, the end of June, the judge might ask, are you ready to set a trial date? And I think, as you say, Billy, uh, most likely they're not going to be ready at that time to set a trial date. Probably not. I agree. No. And, you know, the other thing uh, we, we, we already spoke to was the, uh, the bail. And I think we can agree. Uh, and I'm not going to say we can all agree because all of anything can never agree on, on anything. But I think we can agree that he's not going to get bail. Yeah. Absolutely not. Not not a defendant in a quadruple murder case. Right. Uh, there's no way he's he's going to get out because he's a flight risk. Mm -hmm. He's a he's a danger to the community. He's all the things that uh, all the boxes checked for why you don't uh, give bail. Sure. He's also the other thing is, himself. Mike. You mentioned discovery, and I know that we believe as, as uh, former investigators, former police officers detective sergeants, that type of thing, um, that we believe the police have a hell of a lot more evidence than they're showing their hands at right now. Uh, many people have asked in the chat, uh, they were interested in why was there a gag order on the search warrant of his apartment in, in, uh, in Parkman, uh, Washington, you know, Washington State. Why was there a gag order on what was recovered during that search warrant. Uh, could you answer that? Yeah, we don't know for sure, absolutely for sure, absolutely certain why the judge issued the gag order. I think it's very prudent to do that uh, because it ensures that there won't be a, a media feedi feeding frenzy for any of the information that might be uh, contained in the affidavit and uh, the list of property that may have been looked for and, and seized and discovered and is being gone through. Um, I, I think one, I saw one station, uh, one, one program opined that possibly the gag order meant that there was a, a co-conspirator of Coburg's involved. I, I seriously doubt that. Um, it's probably nothing more than a prudent move by the judge to ensure that people in the air, uh, in that apartment complex where he was living for those couple of months, uh, neighbors and had, gave interviews to the police uh, when people came knocking on his door and their name is in the record as having made some statements. And the judge does not want these people to be harassed, alarmed, annoyed. Um, you know, on social media, we've all seen uh, what happened to the food truck gentleman and the bartender. I won't even say their names because I don't ever want to repeat that because these are private citizens who just happen to be involved you know, peripherally in this huge case. But I think that's probably a prudent order by the judge to ensure that everything goes smoothly. And when the judge is, you know, prepared to lift that gag order, then we'll find out. But I think that's all it is just to keep everything quiet and orderly and not to harass the public. You know, Mike, uh, as less and less information does come out and even more so when more information comes out, the, the, the broadcast media, as well as the internet and the talking heads and the um, uh, content creators on YouTube and uh, Reddit, all these different little chats, the information and the rumors just run rampant. And it's almost as if, you know, I'll say this because, I, I mean, I'm not a member of the broadcast media. They try to dictate the pace and what gets released and the slant that they put on what's happening within this case. And sometimes it can be quite harmful. And it's uh, we've seen during this case that the police, with over, I think they had over 12,000 or 14,000 tips, people don't realize they have to check every single one of them out. So people may say, oh, the more tips, the better. That's not necessarily true. Yeah. Tips that are garbage, and that's a French word for garbage, uh, don't help you, you know? And the, you know, if you just, you get 12 or 14,000 tips, how many of those tips are actually good? How many of them are really uh, coming from someone that knows something? Or, how, or, or someone just calling up because they, they, they want to be part of this? Right. Uh, the, the tips that police want, and they always want tips. Uh, in every investigation, you, they always ask for tips, ask for help but they're looking for tips that have some sort of personal, that where the person giving the tip 
has actually some sort of personal knowledge that they themselves have heard or saw, you know, or, or, or you know, or said, you know, that sort of thing. It seems that when you get an excessive amount of tips, like, you know, over 10,000, a lot of his third party rumors that somebody heard somebody else say that they possibly heard on TV from some sort of news program. And people are looking, it's like some sort of chaos theory. People are looking to connect the bartender with the food truck guy, with, uh, with one, of the, one of the girl's previous boyfriends and all kinds of things. And it, it just gets to turn into a circus. And that actually hurts. I am sure the police uh, have gone through so many tips and probably 5% of them perhaps maybe were useful. But beyond that, um, a lot of it is, as you say, uh, pardon, my, pardon my French, garbage. <laughs> we speak the same, yes. from the same region of France, right. <laughs> the New York City region of France. In, in the same vein as that, there was a report in regards to Reddit posts that had a lot of the information or, or, about this case that turned out to be true before it was released by the police. Uh, I want to play a little of Ashley Banfield right now. Again, in that same vein, I don't think that becomes helpful. Uh, they're trying to claim that this was a Brian Koberger posting on Reddit about the case himself. Now, if that is true, there's a very easy way to find that out. And you don't have to be a rocket scientist to do that. They, a computer guy can check his uh, his ISP address, right? Right. Uh, excuse me, his IP address, internet protocol address, and see if it's registered to him. Boom. Identification done. But we it's it's sort of adding another dimension. Let me let me play a little bit of this instead of me talking about it. We'll see what they say about it. A particularly savvy follower of the Idaho murders, who it sure seems may have had firsthand knowledge of the crime. Joining me now are retired FBI Special Agent Jennifer Koffendoffer, forensic psychologist Chris Mohandi, and trial lawyer Trent Copeland. Welcome to all three of you. Uh, Jennifer, I want to begin with you because as I've been reading these, I find very disturbing um, posts, uh, almost braggadocious, as though this person knew exactly what happened in that house well before the affidavit told us some things about that house. I also felt like there was a similarity in the attitude and the writing style between the the Facebook poster named Papa Roger and the uh, Reddit poster named Inside Looking. Is that just me or do you see that too? Because you look with a whole other set of eyes. Well, there definitely is a similarity. Um, just as you said, in their style and their confidence, in their uh, details, in details that indeed, in many instances, only the killer or the police would know. So from those standpoints, yes, you hit the nail on the head. And if that's the case, um, they become a, a lot more uh, evidentiary. Uh, I would assume, Trent, that all of a sudden, if uh, I don't have the tools that the FBI has, the, the things that used to be in Jennifer Koffendoffer's suitcase are magic. Um, they can subpoena ISP information, et cetera. But Trent, do you see that as something that could be just mana from heaven for prosecutors? If they can link accounts from Facebook to Reddit that brag about all these things and they're accurate, and they were well before that was made public. Is that just sort of like, it's almost a smoking gun? I think it is. And um, and look, here's what's important. Not just that it was braggadocio, not just that it was, um, he had a keen interest in the case, but if it can be established that from the timing and the sequence that he knew things and he was you know publishing things on Reddit as, as these various people that he claimed to be on in these chat rooms, if that can be established, actually, that he knew these things before police knew them, before they were publicly available, then those things are huge from an evidentiary standpoint. And so this reminds me a lot of you know, the BTK killer. Remember him, Ashley? It was his bragging. It was him mocking the police. It was him sending floppy disks to the police about the crimes that got him arrested. And that was his undoing. So these things can have enormous evidentiary value. These things, you know, killers of this nature tend to want the attention. They tend to want to be the smartest person in the 
chat room, so to speak. And in this instance, this could very well be another linchpin in addition to the DNA, in addition to the cell um, towers, in addition to all the other things that the police currently have. This could also be one other thing. And as you say, Ashley, it could really carry the day. You know, Mike, I agree that if this is Brian Koberger, it's very powerful evidence, but it's it's easy to prove. Uh, you know, as we said, the FBI has tools that'll trace the internet service provi- provider address, and if they can match the Facebook post uh, to the Reddit post and they identify that it's him, yeah, then it can absolutely be used as evidence. I'm sure a defense attorney would deny this to the end of time, oh, it could have been someone using his computer or it's not him. You know what I mean? But so is it, is it that powerful of evidence? You know, Billy, you know, if that's a huge, if, um, and it's a monstrous if, and if it is, if it is true that it would show consciousness of guilt and would, would show his state of mind, uh, uh, taking ownership over that knowledge that only, you know, the police would at that point know and the public wouldn't know because it wasn't disclosed about the uh, presence of the sheath with, you know, in the, in the, in the, uh, in the home. It's a, again, it's a big if. Um, and I think they're, they're hopeful that it is because if, 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 again, I hate to keep using the word, if it is, uh, that's huge. Um, but if it is not, then it, it's a big nothing burger. And at this point, you know, actually today as we're talking, uh, the FBI and the Moscow State Moscow Police and the Idaho State Police have had his laptop and they've gone through it. And if it and they could tell very quickly, uh, go to that date and that time to see where he was on his computer. Um, it's not gonna. It's gonna be something that they may already know if. He is the poster of those messages on Reddit and, you know, under an assumed name. But they're not going to tell the police. No, I'm sorry. They're not going to make that public anytime soon. So although uh, the attorney uh, discussing this with Ashley Banfield um, was correct, if it is Kohlberger, that's huge. But be prepared uh, for it to be if not. And it's somebody else. And who is that other person? It could be someone who is friends of one of the officers involved in the case who may have heard it from someone else. It's possible. Mike, you know, something in that vein, Mike, in that vein, there was a lot of people that had information before it was officially out. And I know that for a fact. Oh, yeah. They had, oh, there's a rumor that, I mean, I heard that people knew there was an eyewitness before, way before that was out. So, you know, there's people on this case in on the law enforcement side sure. and there always is that we're talking to friends family and some to press we know we always had all leakers to the press right. and someone told members of the press this so they knew this and i i think um john miller from cbs even alluded to that he knew the some things before they were out there so could that be someone that, that was privy the insider information that was not yet officially released by the police. Yeah. I think more likely than not, that is absolutely true. Um, It would be too good if it was, you know, Kohlberg himself, be prepared for it to be someone, like you said, someone tangentially related, maybe, you know, just think about how many people are connected to this investigation uh, between the detectives from Moscow, the Idaho state troopers, you, the FBI agents, you have people from the coroner's office, you have paramedics, you've got crime scene photographers, you've got fingerprint technicians, you've got all of these people. Um, and so they may have said something to someone and that's huge. So I agree with you. It's probably most likely than not. If I had to bet my paycheck, I would bet it's someone tangentially related to the investigation. Well, Mike, you're using some big college words Sorry. there tangentially, but that, <laughs> that's Sorry. all right. We learned, so, we learned something uh all right. Something new every day, that's for sure. I'm going to try to work in the, the word surreptitiously sometimes. Uh, okay, yeah, I hope you do that. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If you like podcasts from a police perspective, then you're in the right place. 
Uh, we cover that from a police perspective. We try to follow the evidence and not be sensational. If you want to subscribe to us, please go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, and ring that bell. And, you know, share us with your friends. And please do comment. We love to read the comments. We love to answer the comments. And we, we, we appreciate uh, the education uh, and the, the intellectual manner in which our friends, our fans, our subscribers follow this channel. And we appreciate you guys. If you want to support us, we have a Patreon with three different levels. And we also have a YouTube channel memberships with Countum, five different levels. And you see the folks in the green font. They're part of our YouTube channel memberships. And we really appreciate all our fans, friends, and subscribers. I'm going to play a little bit more of this, and then we'll move on. Yeah, I remember that moment uh, where BTK said in court, just so matter-of-factly, every little detail as though we were all just little pieces in his game board. Uh, and it was just joy for him to just hold us all in his grip for as long as it took him to spill out those vile details. I, I hope we don't have that in this case, but in the same sense, I hope we do so we get the answers. But that's your you know, that's your bucket, Chris Mohandi. There was something else that Inside Looking wrote. I'm just going to read it out here. It says, all I'm saying is that the killer is not a registered SO, which is sex offender. I would bet all my chips on that. Not an SO came up in so many other posts. It seems like he's fixated on that. And of course, what happened later, uh, the police said, this isn't a sex crime. Right. Well, um, you know, again, it's possible, uh, you know, that uh, a killer like this will, you know, taunt uh, in whatever methods available, whether it's a, you know, Zodiac style, you know, taunting that we saw using newspapers and so forth, or, you know, uh, some other forum like social media. You know, it's also possible that, you know, there's just other people out there that are arrogant and uh, braggarts and so forth. But certainly narcissism is going to be a key feature of this kind of individual. And there was a certain pride that was in that statement of of knowing with of with degree of certainty uh, that would be consistent if indeed it's learned later on. Thank you for watching. Go to newsnationnow.com to find. You know, Mike, that's one of the things, and I'm I'm by far not a behavioral uh, analyst. However, that's one of the things that I believe. And again, not being trained in psychology, I believe there is somewhere hidden in his psyche, some psychosexual uh, reason for these these killings and these attacks. I mean, I think it's been said that um, Kaylee Gonsalves uh, was targeted. Now, that's been said, it's been recanted, and it's been restated. Uh, but it seems, at the very least, females that lived in this house were targeted. Right. He's not, that would yeah. sort of imply a, a sexuality, a sexual component to this, even though there was no specific sexual attack. No, true. He he doesn't. He's not the the rapist that people would might think, or you know, dragging some uh, woman down down an alleyway late at night, um, stabbing her, raping her, that sort of brutality. This is different, but because of the gender differences, he didn't attack four males. He attacked. Uh, two, those two females on the third floor, and and um, the gentleman and his uh, and, and his girlfriend on the second floor, Carnotal. Um, uh, so yeah, there is uh, that because it goes cross gender, it may they may have some uh, sexual aspect to it, and the fact that he probably uh, has been rejected by many ladies in the past, uh, and he doesn't understand why it. He's got a fixation on on women that way that he finds them to be uh, attractive yet you know uh, dismissive. So in in some ways, I'm not a behaviorist at all. I'm a, a cop and an attorney, but um, I think uh, yeah, absolutely that you cannot take that away off the table completely. That there is uh, some uh, sexual fantasy anger going on in there somewhere. You know, definitely. Yeah, you know, I mean, there is absolutely rage here. And, you know, 
There's so many questions that folks have, especially about the um, the evidence. And the big evidence, of course, has to be the DNA on the knife sheath, on the button that is used to open the knife sheath. There's a million questions. Was that DNA? What was the uh, derivation of it? Was it touch DNA? Was it skin cells? Was it blood? They, The police never gave that up. They never said it's blood. They said they recovered DNA, which was matched to Brian Koberger's father, which was like a 99.5% match. Right. Now, they get his DNA after he's arrested because he's arrested. Uh, they can swab him and put it in CODIS, which is the FBI combined DNA index system. And now they have the D- his DNA, his actual DNA, which, of course, lawyers would challenge if his actual DNA was never compared against the evidence at this crime scene. We compare it with potentially he left his blood at the scene, which 99.9% of all criminologists and crime scene experts think uh, probably happened. And then we have, like, to me, that is what we're talking when we say slam dunk evidence. Right now, people are already making up excuses for the knife sheath. Oh, you know, he could have left, someone else could have left it there or planted it. You know, you have this craziness. But to dispel all of those rumors and all of those possibilities, you have more evidence, which is going to put him in the house. And then talk about transfer evidence. They find blood in his car. Come on. It, yeah. It's all over, you know? Yeah. Yeah, the idea that there's um, there's some sort of excuse for that, for Coburg's um, DNA being on the uh, knife sheath, it, it's incredible. People like to, you know, speculate. But, yeah, in fact, you know, there's. could you just imagine a scenario where he touched the knife sheath at some point and then someone who had some, you know, malice towards Coburg would kill the girls and and um, and then plant you know co- the knife sheath there, figuring they're going. The police are going to get there and then get Kohlberg's DNA. Well, that would be ridiculous. I mean, that's so far fantasy left field. Um, yeah, that's if they get one drop of any of those four people, uh, young men and women's blood off that car, it's over. Lights out conflicting report that has surfaced ahead of Brian Koberger's status hearing on Thursday. So Shannon Gray, who's the family attorney for victim Kaylee Gonsalves, he says that no one knew Koberger before the murders. But according to last week's probable cause affidavit released by Moscow officials, Koberger was in the area of the victim's home at least a dozen times before the attack. That information, which was gathered gathered through cell phone data, also puts Koberger at the crime scene hours after the attack. The 28-year-old was attending Washington State University at the time, less than 10 miles from the Idaho crime scene. Gray has previously said that the victims gave no indication that they were being stalked, but that if any of the families find any information connecting the victims to Koberger, it will be turned over to police. A time the suspect could have visited the home was during one of their off-campus parties. You see, the home had a reputation as being a party house. In fact, police responded to at least two noise complaints just a few months before the murders. Body cam footage captures officers speaking with three of the victims, Kaylee Gonsalves, Madison Mogan, and Zana Kernodal, during two separate incidents. Is this your place? Yeah. Perfect. You know why we're here? Um, I assume noise. Noise, yeah. Yeah. Big speaker right there? Yeah. Nothing against having a party. Once neighbors start calling in, then we have an issue. Fair. So usually, at least for me, I'll give you a verbal warning. Okay. Uh, Once I have neighbors calling in, your music's too loud. You're disturbing the peace. Yeah. Nothing against having parties. Nothing against having people over who are overage to drink. Mm -hmm. But again, once we start disturbing the neighbors, then we've got an issue. This is your place, so I'm going to hold you responsible. Uh Because it is your place, you're also responsible for everybody here. Yeah. So I'm going to grab your info. Yeah. Um, And if I do have to come back here, uh, a 300 some dollar tickets coming your way okay. and only gets more expensive from there. Is that fair? Yeah, that's okay. fair. Absolutely. All right, Madison. So here's the deal. Okay. They've already said that no one here lives, uh, like none of the, the occupants that live at this address are here right now. So now you have a house full of random people. Um, you need to let them know that the noise needs to, needs to come down. Okay. We just received a, a noise complaint. We want that music. All right. We get it. There's, there was a party house, and there can be all kinds of skin cell DNA, touch DNA, maybe even blood DNA about the house. But that all that doesn't uh, change the fact 
that the defendant's DNA is seen on a knife sheath that's found on the bed where someone was murdered. Two people were murdered in that bed. That doesn't, all the, all the DNA in the world, I mean, look, I'm, I'm oversimplifying it. A defense attorney will use that as, uh, you know, to create doubt. A Milwaukee civilian, thank you for the $10 super chat. I'm not blaming victims, survivors, but are you guys as baffled, concerned by the affidavit's comments about the survivors' interaction with BK? Uh, Mike, I'm going to let you answer that. Um, I, given given the fact that um, that we saw the affidavit, all the facts in the affidavit, and look at everything chronologically, um, no one knows how we would react to you know that sort of event. That's you know in 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 our house, not I'm sorry, in a house that we were renting that was known to be a party house. Um, we're not sure exactly from the affidavit all of the transactions that went on and all that the two surviving uh, young ladies witnessed. Um, we don't. We just don't know um, to sit there and I don't want to sit in, sit in judgment of them. They'll have to explain their actions and. Remember, it's set against the backdrop of a 4 a.m. wake up uh, after a night of partying and, and drinking and, you know, that sort of thing. So that always has the context in which something happens always has to be taken into context. But, um, you know, we, we, you know, you, me and everyone else, we, we may do things that in later on in hindsight, may seem to be inexplicable or dumb, you know, ridiculous or, or intelligent or amazingly smart. You know, yeah, this is what we have to deal with. This is people's reactions. And uh, you can't go back and replay the tape and, and try to psychoanalyze uh, this, these young ladies that were left in the house. Um, they saw something or, or did or saw some things and didn't see other things and were aware of some things and weren't aware of other things. And we should just let it go at that, you know? Absolutely. Folks are asking about the bloody shoe print in the house. And I just want to point out that initially uh, it was found the second day of the crime scene process. So initially they didn't find the bloody footprint and it's the bottom of uh, a Vans shoe, a Vans type shoe. Um, they used a chemical called amino black that raised up the, the blood uh, and it, it was able then to be seen. Now, I've spoken about this before and I, I won't belabor it, but there's something called class characteristics to evidence and individual characteristics. The class characteristics, again, I feel like I'm going over this every day, but it's okay because there's new people listening. Class characteristics for a Van shoe are a very specific bottom impression that that very specific shoe would leave in blood. Now, the individual characteristics are how the individual wears out his shoes, his or her shoes. I know I wear out my shoes to the left. I don't know. I guess I lean to the left when I walk. But also on the bottom of a shoe is something called pits and fissures, F-I-S-S-U-R-E-S. -S -S -E That's like from stepping on rocks, glass, other things, and they leave marks that are almost like identifiable like a fingerprint. So if they recover this shoe from the defendant's house and compare it against this bloody footprint and it matches perfectly, it's very, very, very powerful evidence. Yeah. Bill, I just want to just to talk about the uh, uh, defense attorney's role in this when it comes to uh, questioning witnesses and their uh, uh, presentation before the trial jury. Um Remember, the prosecutor has a huge burden. They have to prove each and every element of the crime, what we call the corpus delecti. They have to prove that each and every element of the crime beyond a reasonable doubt. Mike, you know something? Someone the other day basically praised us for defining that. Oh, and the okay. corpus delecti is not the body. No. It's the body of the crime. Right, right. All those so ingredients. So we defined that the other day, and people were like, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So. Yes. Explain that, Professor Geary, oh, yeah. before you move on. Okay. All the elements of the crime, you know, when that person committed it, that fact that the person committed it, how they committed it, where they committed it, you know, uh, the tools that they used, how they get in, how they escape. All of those little factors have to be proven to a trial jury 
beyond a reasonable doubt, which is the highest level of standard of guilt that we have in our system. So you have to do, you have to convince 12 people that there's really no reasonable doubt that this is anyone else could have done this at this time, in this place, in this matter, other than the defendant sitting in the courtroom. The defense attorney really only has to try and convince one out of the 12 people that there is some reasonable doubt, just a little bit of reasonable doubt in their minds where they might think, you know, it is possible that someone else may have done this. And if and so the defense attorney only has to convince one, the prosecutors only have to convince 12. And the prosecutor has to prove uh, guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And the defense attorney only has to uh, prove to one person that there is some, the presence of some doubt. Very different burdens at the trial. You know, the other thing, though, Mike, is that what everyone also that's listening needs to understand is that the prosecution has what's called the totality of all the evidence. So when all of the evidence is considered not just one thing, mm -hmm. it's extremely powerful. And so, a defense attorney may choose or will choose to attack each and every bit of evidence that was presented either as the trial goes along or in his or her summation. Yeah, the, the defense attorney, ha again, has the burden uh, of, you know, trying to convince the jury that there is reasonable doubt. They have to zealously advocate for Mr. Coburg to do anything less would be a violation of their rules of ethics. So it's going to be a dogfight in that courtroom. Absolutely. Uh, for each and every piece of evidence that is presented and each and every uh, witness that uh, is, is actually testifying. Um, remember, you know, Billy, you and I know, and a lot of people might not realize it, but this is a totally circumstantial evidence case. DNA is circumstantial evidence. Uh, seeing someone perhaps enter a building or leave a building or hear a scream inside a building, um, things like that. That's all circumstantial evidence of guilt. It's not direct evidence of guilt. And so therefore, the uh, defense is going to be able to, is going to try as best they can to show that there is some doubt on, in some of that evidence and try and hang, as we call it, hang a juror, hang one juror. Um, but as you say, the prosecutor will tell the, ju the jury in his summation that, you know, look at the totality of the circumstances, you know, the, the look at everything all together. And taking it all together, use your common sense and decide what you think. Um, and, you know, in, in, the, in the prosecutor's opinion, that is let would lead to a conclusion that is Brian Kohlberger. But, yeah, the, it's going to be one heck of a dogfight in that courtroom. You know, Mike, uh, circumstantial evidence, as we know, uh, as former members of the service, um, when there's a lot of it, it's very, very powerful evidence. It's not as good, of course, as the smoking gun and or, or confession or right. someone uh, actually witnessing it. But I want to talk a little bit about a DM, the, the roommate who uh, actually was on the second floor that night. We're learning that now. Um, how good could her eyewitness identification be? And I just want to explore this a little bit because we all know people have a certain aura, a certain gait, a certain way they move, a certain way they look. And even if you don't see their face, there are other identifiers to that body type. How tall was the person? In this, the eyewitness talks about bushy eyebrows, the shape of the face. You could see the shape of the face through a mask. So how good... Is that eyeball witness? And also, the same eyeball witness is an ear witness. The She hears what we think is the perpetrator say, oh, it's okay, I'm going to help you. So not that I spoke to, uh, I mean, I don't think any prosecutor would take the chance and do what's called a voice lineup. Right. Because if they did a voice lineup and the witness failed to choose the correct voice, 
they would lose that as evidentiary information and it would hurt them more than help them. Right. And a defense attorney would jump all over that to say, look, if the person who was only three feet away from them and it was no, and it wasn't any other noise and they heard this voice and now, now they can't be sure if it's the same person's voice, that's reasonable doubt right there. Ladies and gentlemen, of the jury, that's reasonable doubt. And if that's reasonable doubt, then consider everything else that she said with a grain of salt. It's reasonable doubt. Um, it's going to be very difficult for, uh, as she said, identified as DM in the uh, in the affidavit. If I'm the prosecutor, I want her up there first, and I want her to tell her story, and I want to get the uh, jurors' attention immediately with the humanity of her story. I don't want to put up a DNA expert as the first witness. No way. You want to capture the uh, you know that uh, surviving uh, young lady and have her discuss the events of that evening before, during, and after. And the fact that she actually can uh, describe his eyebrows shows that there was enough light in there to make an identification. Um, she will also, she will get beaten up a little bit, obviously, by the defense to, um, you know, about maybe perhaps the presence of alcohol. Yeah. And that's understandable. And, you know, everybody's you know, we'll understand that all the jurors will understand it. The prosecution will will talk, will um, go lead her through her direct examination. And then, she, you know, the defense attorney absolutely has a right to, um, you know, attack her credibility. Um, they'll do that probably as hard as they can, but also risking perhaps alienating members of the jury. Um, because if you are a person in that jury who may look at that young lady and say, she's probably very sincere, but given the fact that it was 4 a.m. and she had drank a lot of alcohol, I'm not calling her a liar, but maybe perhaps she really didn't see what she thought maybe she saw. You might get one juror that will, you know, do mental gymnastics and, and bend their bend logic into a pretzel in order to give Brian Koberg the benefit of the doubt. I hope not, but you might. But, um, you know, she is going to have to uh, ex explain her actions. But again, in the, I think the jurors will be very forgiving of her because she's a young lady and it was a, it was a, a confusing set of circumstances. And I think that the, um, the defense is going to have to interview her or cross-examine her very gingerly. Yes. Or the jury would not appreciate a... Um, a scathing cross-examination and a pointing the finger at examination. Right. You know, another big question is a lot of people are asking is, did any of the victims know Brian Koberger? Now, the only one that really knows the answer to that are the police. And what they'd of course would be checking a social media. They'd be checking maybe interactions in the restaurant that, um, uh, was it Kaylee worked at with? Um, yes, yes. Uh, I think Ms. Mogan too worked. There. Mogan, yes, uh, she worked at the same restaurant. So, was there any interaction at that? Was there? Was he ever? Which would help the defense a lot. Was he ever at the house? Is there any possibility? So, the the prosecution, the, the police, have to slam the door on that. They have to shut that down. Let me play a little bit of this and see what the family says before the attack. That information, which was gathered, gathered through cell phone data, also puts Koberger at the crime scene hours after the attack. The 28-year-old was attending Washington State University at the time, less than 10 miles from the Idaho crime scene. Gray has previously said that the victims gave no indication that they were being stalked, but that if any of the families find any information connecting the victims to Koberger, it will be turned over to police. A time the suspect could have visited the home was during one of their off-campus parties. You see, the home had a reputation as being a party house. In fact, police responded to at least two noise complaints just a few months before the murders. Body cam footage captures officers speaking with three of the victims, Kaylee Gonsalves, Madison Mogan, and Zana Kernodal, during two separate incidents. Is this your place? Yeah. Perfect. You know why we're here? Uh, I assume noise. Noise, yeah. Yeah. Big speaker right there. Yeah. Nothing against having a party. Once neighbors start calling in, then we have an issue. Fair. 
Okay. I'm so sorry. It's okay. I just, I just hope for your sake that your friends don't put you in a position where you get the citation and you have to go to court to defend yourself from your friend's behavior. Make sense? Just so chilling seeing them there only a few months before this. So I'll bring it back in Brian and Terry on this. So Terry, the affidavit places Koberger near the house numerous times before the murder, but surviving roommates didn't know him. So if you were the prosecution, how do you explain that? Well, a couple things here. First of all, if he's near the house, but outside the house, what the prosecution is going to have to argue is he was casing the house. He mm. was going around trying to figure out what are the entrances, what are the exits, how can I get in? So that's one possible explanation for his being there and the victims not knowing him because he never entered the house. But as we saw in those clips, there were multiple parties at the house apparently and there were noise complaints. So it could very well be that he was inside the house because those cell towers put him in that area. If he's in the house and there are lots of strangers, then perhaps we just don't know whether or not any of the victims literally ran into him. There could have been a hundred people in there and they could be all people from the school and they don't know everyone who is in that school. So I think they would have to basically say they didn't run into him and the prosecution is gonna have to prove that that was what exactly happened. He might've been in the house, but the victims didn't see him. I, I, you know, if he was in there, I, I, he just would stand out. He's older, he looks different. So Brian, let's go back to that hearing that's on Thursday. What should we expect from them? Well, you know, it's a concern, but it, it is a possibility that they had an encounter or encounters with him. Uh, and the police really need to probably slam the door on that and close that door that the defense is going to try to open. You know what, though, Bill, um, even if they can't slam the door on it and there is a possibility that, you know, uh, the defense can, can claim, yeah, he was there and uh, and they may do that and say, you know, yeah, he ran into Ms. Kernodal, Ms. Gonsalves, Ms. Mogan and, you know, and um, Mr. Chapin somewhere along the line. Maybe he they don't remember him. Maybe he was just there once. It, it, to me, it's not it's not a case killer whatsoever, because in the end, yeah, you might have a fingerprint there. You might have a footprint there. Or, you know, you might have a, a hair DNA, but there's no way that you're going to be able to explain away that DNA on that knife sheath in that bedroom lying there with, with uh, four young uh, people uh, slaughtered. So you, you can't, you know, you got to go as a prosecutor, you got to go with the case that you have. Um, and as you know, in, ca in many cases, there are some unanswered questions that you just don't know the answer to. You would love it. You would love that as a squad commander to have, you know, every single I dotted uh, and every single T crossed and in every single case. And, and you, there'll be cases where you just, there may be some unknown thing, unknown facts. Absolutely. You got to go Folks, with it no matter what. If you're looking for a great attorney in the New York City metropolitan area, Joe Murray's your man. He's a retired member of the service, NYPD police officer, and he's a big supporter of police off the cuff. Uh, if you want to reach him, his cell phone is 718-514-3855. His email is J joe at jmurray-law.com. His website is jmurray-law.com. Joe Murray's a fantastic attorney. And uh, a big supporter, a huge supporter of Police Off the Cuff. And we really appreciate his, uh, his support. Folks, this evening, um, we're going to actually come on and do a double header. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Mike Geary has a life and has declined <laughs> to come on at Sorry. 7 o'clock. But um, tonight at 7, we're going to have uh, our straight out of Brooklyn retired NYPD detective Phil Grimaldi. And... Um, we're going to have uh, former Brooklyn District Attorney and Chief of the Brooklyn Homicide Squad, Michael Vecchioni. That's at 7 p.m. We're going to do a little bit of a deeper dive into this. I mean, look, this case is fascinating. There's a lot of um, things that are going to come up that we, we don't have the information on right now. But it, it's going to come out. And it, it, we'll keep explaining it to... Uh, to you guys as to what occurred. I always want to mention, you know, sometimes we lose sight of the fact that these are real people. And these four students that were slaughtered, Ethan Chapin, Zaina Canodal, 
Madison Mogan and Kaylee Gonsalves. And we can't ever forget that they lost their lives on November 13th. In the same vein, I have to say this at every time that um, Brian Koberger is innocent till proven guilty. And he, in our system, he'll get his day in court and we'll follow this case all the way through. As we said, the next court appearance is June 26th. And there's a good chance that it, when they appear in court on the 26th, they'll have the whole case put off till September. Because in law enforcement, pretty much no one wants to work over the summer. And unfortunately, that's the way things go. But uh, that that could definitely happen. Uh, Mike Geary, I want to thank you so much. You're welcome. For, for bringing your form of calmness, <laughs> intellectualism, and knowledge to this case. It's very much appreciated. And, and when I read the chat and how much people appreciate you, uh, it's a great thing. Mike, um, final uh, final words. Final words. Just keep in mind, as you say, Ms. Gonsalves, Ms. Mogan, you know, Mr. Chapin, Ms. Kernodal, just keep them in mind. This is what it's all about. And, um, you know, um, just please don't listen to crazy rumors online and things like that. Uh, if you have questions, you know, uh, about police procedure and stuff, ask us. We'd love to answer them. This is what we do. This is our bread and butter for many years. So um, don't listen to internet sleuths and things like that. Come to where, you know, where we give you some good, accurate information as we go through this case. Well said, Mike. Folks, thank you for tuning in today. Uh, on behalf of myself, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon and retired Sergeant and Professor Mike Geary. Have a great day. Stay safe and God bless. Take care. One episode, just